Turn to the end of Romans chapter 2, if you would. I'm going to read from verse 25 to verse 8 in chapter 3. We will look at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3 this morning. We're in the middle of the section where Paul, after stating his thesis statement of the gospel, has now begun to expand upon the need for the gospel before going into justification by faith alone and, and other things. So we're in the middle of that. We've seen him present the case of guilt against the Gentiles from ch verse 18 in chapter 1 to the end of that chapter. We've seen him begin in chapter uh, 2 verse 1 to turn his guns upon the Jews and to show them that they will be judged in the same way according to works, judged by his law, that it matters, it matters to have his law, it matters to have circumcision. It matters to be a part of the covenant people if that is expressed in the life in a joyful obedience and growing <coughs> obedience to the Lord. But his prosecution of them has shown that while they have the law and circumcision and all the covenant privileges, that they're not actually living in light of that law. They're teaching well, but they're not practicing what they're preaching. They have circumcision of the flesh, but not circumcision of the heart, speaking to them in general, uh, of course. But we're going to back up and read in verse 25 and go through verse 8 of chapter 3. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but, the, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon your word as it's preached, as it's heard, that you would be working in us, bringing us to faith or nurturing us, fortifying our faith, whatever our individual situation is. 
And Lord, it's been, it's been kind of tough sledding this big section on Gentile sin and guilt and Jewish sin and guilt, but it has a beneficial and purifying effect on us if we will let it. And even as much as we've talked about sin and needing a Savior, we've only scratched the surface of what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. And help us this morning as we look into your word and we're coming toward the end of the section on Jewish guilt to, I pray that we won't wear out on it, that we won't lose touch with it, we, we won't just let it fly over our heads, but that we'll grab hold to it. Lord, help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear your word as your word in the power of Spirit. And do your work in our hearts, Lord. Save the lost. Grow the saved. Work powerfully because we know this is your word. And it shall not return to you void. So we look to you for help. And we trust you for that help. Because it is your word ministered by your spirit. Lifting high your son drawing all kinds of people to yourself. Do your work, Lord. We look to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I grew up not taking discipline seriously. One reason for that, and notice I said one reason for that, was that my parents were not consistent in discipline. I was grounded many times only to be set free hours later or the next day. I learned how to cry crocodile tears to get my way. Many threats were given, but most of those rang hollow. And I would take advantage of them. And I would use their grace, and it was a misplaced grace, but it sort of fueled me in my disobedience. And because they didn't seem to take my sin all that seriously, I didn't take it seriously either. Because I was a Duncan. I was in the family. I knew they weren't going to kick me out of the family. I presumed upon their grace. I was spoiled. And I did not fear discipline. The Jews of Paul's day operated in a similar way. They counted on the fact that they'd been born into God's covenant people, Israel. They were Abraham's descendants, after all. The seed of Abraham. Theirs was the Torah, the temple, the covenants, the worship. They were marked out by circumcision as an external sign, and most of their religion was an external religion. They presumed upon their privileges... They misinterpreted the long-suffering nature of God and rationalized their disobedience. They were members of God's covenant community, Israel. And so they presumed upon His grace and His promises of forgiveness. And they did not take sin seriously. And that is what Paul is taking them to account for. He's saying, don't look at your lips, don't look at your externals, look at your heart, look at your life. 
You talk a good game, but you don't practice that game. You're wearing all the stuff. You've gone through the externals, but you don't have a circumcised heart. And so they would be tempted to say, so what's the use? And that's what we'll look at today. But their sort of understanding of grace had caused them to not take sin seriously. And any grace that causes us to not take sin seriously is cheap and false grace. God has promised blessings for obedience, but He's also promised judgment upon those whose lives are characterized by sin. And He is faithful and righteous in carrying out both. And today I want to look at what I've called the, just simply from the text, the justification of God. And you'll see him being justified there in verse 4 in his judgment. Paul uses, and he's been doing this already in this section, but he uses questions and answers very well. He's using these rhetorical questions. He's even giving answers and he's driving home a point with all of these questions. We have eight verses in front of us that contain eight questions in the midst of them. And some of them, and I'll point them out when we get there, some of them are put together in the original language in such a way that they demand a no answer. And boy, do they get one. But the point I want us to take away today is this, just simple main point. Take sin seriously. Because God is both, God is both faithful and righteous in judgment. Take sin seriously because God is both faithful and righteous in judgment. First point, take sin seriously because God is faithful in judgment. And see, this is where we get our question. Paul's been saying, look, you're, you have the law, but you're not practicing it. You have circumcision, but not really, not the real circumcision. You externally are part of the covenant community, but your life reveals that you don't have the heart that is a heart that is in covenant with God. So really, in your case, if all those things are true of you, then all of this religious privilege has not benefited you. In fact, it's brought more responsibility down on your head. So the natural question then would be in verse 1 of chapter 3, and it could, you, it, it could sound sort of frustrated in its presentation, then what advantage has the Jew? If what you're saying is true, if it hasn't benefited me at all, then it is of no advantage to me to be a Jew. And you know, this is a Jew speaking to Jews. He's, he's a converted Jew. Yes, he was a Pharisee. He was seeking to destroy the church and he was misusing all the privileges as well at one point. But Christ has saved his soul, has converted him, has circumcised his heart so that he sees the truth and has become not just a witness but an apostle and one God would use to write Scripture. He says this, and you get our, we get our first two questions here. What advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul doesn't say, well, there's a little bit of value. Look what he says, and, and those are good questions. What is my advantage being Jewish? What is the value of circumcision? Look what Paul says, much in every way. Much in every way. 
not just a little, but much. There is much advantage to you being a Jew. You had privileges that most of the world didn't experience. That's still true of us today. We have many privileges of being in the church that a lot of the world doesn't experience. But look at, look at the rest of verse 2. It says, to begin with. And sometimes you'll see first there. Really what it's meaning, if you look carefully, you won't find secondly or a second. It's really sort of emphasizing. It's, it's, it should be, read it as chiefly. Much in every way, chiefly, to begin with, or chiefly, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God. That sounds mysterious, doesn't it? Oracles of God. But it simply means divine sayings. Right? And they were entrusted with the very words of God through Moses, through the rest of the Old Testament. Jewish people had the very words of the living God in their possession. What a treasure. What a treasure. I know most of us don't act like it's all that much of a treasure. This is a great treasure. Chiefly. What advantage is there to growing up in the church or being in the church? We have the Word of God. The very Word of God. Inspired by the Spirit. Written through men. Without taking away their style and personality and all that. Sin was restrained. To such that we have the very Word of God. As did they. And Paul is saying, this is the chief advantage. You had God's Word in your possession, which was a great treasure, but also a responsibility. And though you gave it lip service, as we've seen so far in chapter 2, you gave it lip service, you gave it external service, it really didn't get much heart service from you. Now we know that's not true of every Jew, and we know that there was the remnant, we'll talk about later in chapter 10, the remnant by grace, right? And remnant theology is talking about the Jews, right? Anyway. Wait till chapter 10 to preach that, Jeff. To begin with, they were entrusted with the Word of God. And that brought a responsibility then to hear from God and respond faithfully to that revelation. To go and to hear it preached and taught when it was, but to read it as much as you could on your own and have it in heart to memorize it. They spent a lot of time memorizing the Word of God. And they didn't enjoy the benefits we have. They didn't all have a five or six copies laying on the coffee table. They probably didn't have a coffee table. But if we're not careful, familiarity breeds contempt. And we have Bibles, but we don't read them. But you know what? You're still responsible for it. He's, been, he's given us a treasure. We may not take advantage of that treasure, but we will be held responsible for that treasure. God has told us everything we need for life and godliness. And thankfully, it's not a room of 500 books, although some of us have more. I have, I have trouble hoarding books because I'm always giving them away. 
I don't really care about if my house is full of books, but some guys do. But we have the book. And we have the Spirit that teaches us the book and points us to Jesus that we might have life and have it abundantly. He's like, you have a great treasure because you as the Jewish people were entrusted with the very word of God. God saw to it that you had his word. Now, look, he, he, answers, he asks another question in verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness, notice this, unbelief, resulting in an unfaithful life. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Because God gave the word, but it didn't result in their faithfulness. Is it God's fault? Yes, not, is it? Is my unbelief, if I have unbelief, God's fault? Is the unbeliever's unbelief God's fault? Mm -mm, it's not. It's not. And in fact, he warns us in Hebrews and other places to beware lest there be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief. But Paul is just asking a question here, and this is one of the spots where, where it's put together in the Greek where it expects a negative answer. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness... Don't miss that. That's where the unfaithfulness came from, their unbelief, their faithlessness. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And look what Paul says, and just so you know, this may be different in some of your translations. If you have King James, it probably says, God forbid. You know, you might have, of course not. You know, and, and, and here, by no means with, a, with an exclamation point. And what all of those things are trying to bring out for you is that this is the strongest possible negation in the Greek. It's the strongest possible negation. This is said to not be true with force. You can't blame your faithlessness. You can't blame your unfaithfulness on God who remains faithful. That's His nature. By no means. And look what Paul says. These are Paul's words right here. Let God be true, even though everyone were a liar. Even if every human being who ever lived was a liar, that wouldn't change the nature of God who has been true and spoken truth to that rebellious human nature. And we know that's not the case, and there's a covenant of grace and all of that. But Paul says, no. You cannot blame your faithlessness, your unfaithfulness on God. When did that start? When did we start blaming other people for our sin? Well, as soon as that jack-in-the-box popped out, right? What did they have the temerity to say? What did Adam have the temerity to say to, to God? Exactly right. It is that woman you gave me. That's why I sin. That's what some of us guys are still trying to say to God. You know what? It's a lie. Or maybe the ladies. 
It's that man you gave. If it wasn't for him, I would stop. God's going, when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you about him or her. But it started in the garden. You did this, God. If you hadn't have given me this woman, Paul is interrupting them from blaming their faithlessness on God. He says, you cannot, it's out of bounds, you cannot do that. Although, we still try. Some of the Jews had been unfaithful to God in His covenant because they did not truly believe. They were faithless. They claimed to be His people, but they didn't act like His people. And God was not responsible for their rebellion. Would God be unfaithful to judge them for their unfaithfulness? No. No. God has told us what He requires, and you know what? He requires it. Now look what he quotes. He quotes David in Psalm 51, that you might be justified in your words and prevail when you judge or are judged and in both situations, right? If you go read the psalm, it'll say when you judge. Here it's coming from the Septuagint and looking at a particular verb. And some translations still say judge and some say are judged and they're wrestling with whatever the, what is the form of that Greek word. But really think about both sides of that matter. God is justified when He judges. He is truth. He, he's not, God's not under some standard that's above Him. He is the standard. He is righteous and holy and pure and true. And therefore He's communicated that to us through His Word and through His law that we might know how to live a life that is righteous and holy and pure and true. And God not only promised to bless obedience to that word, He promised to judge disobedience. Remember what Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the curses and the blessings. God promised, go back and read, read your Old Testament. I'm not going to do that today. But go back and read your Old Testament. Like, for instance, in Deuteronomy 28, God was faithful to promise that He would both bless obedience and curse disobedience. Because He is holy and righteous and just. And you might not keep His word, but He will keep His word. He is faithful to keep His word. And we wouldn't have Him be any other way. God is faithful in both cursing disobedience and in blessing obedience. Both mercy and judgment. And see, the reason we struggle sometimes is we don't really know who God is. Suppose there were only ten, live, ten people living and they were all sinful. And God saved five of them. Would you be okay with that? If He saved five of them and gave them grace and judged the other five, who gets injustice? See, we think if he's going to save one, he's got to save them all, don't we? He doesn't have to save one. one. Not one of them deserves salvation. And he says in his word, and we'll get there in Romans 9, 
I'm telling you, buckle up. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It is the divine prerogative. But one thing he's telling us to is, I will be faithful to my word and my promises. And I have promised blessing to obedience and cursing to disobedience. And I will be true to that. So in other words, if we know God, Paul's already said this by circumcised heart, if the Jews had known God, their lives would have been characterized um, like, like, like some who in the Bible are called blameless. That means looking on them from the outside, you wouldn't see any obvious violation of God's law. It didn't mean in their heart they didn't have any struggles, right? But they, they obeyed God because they loved Him. And because He was at work in them by His grace, they were growing in that obedience. That's the Christian life. Growing in repentance. Growing in faith. Doing what God says because we love Him. That's what it means to love God. Not any flippy floppy feelings. We ought to have them because of His grace. But John says in 1 John, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. That our hearts are tuned to them. Imagine this. Imagine a football team. Probably all of y'all are at least familiar with football and that's not kicking a round ball around. That's an oblong ball that you throw and kick and fight over. Um, but imagine a team and you know every good football team has a coach and I know in high school we used to have to try out for the teams right basketball team you can think of that that is a round ball and you make the team because you've shown promise and you've shown talent and you've shown a willingness to do what the coach says because part of tryouts was he'd put us through plays to see if we would really uh, pick and roll and all of those you know, if we do it, you stand in front of this person while this person runs this way and then you throw the ball to him. But the coach makes the plan, the game plan. The coach calls the plays and the players execute the plans and plays of the coach. Well, what if one of the players on the team gets cocky and starts doing his own thing? The play is for him to hit the A gap. Nah, I'm going to hit the B gap. And not because it was just a one in a one in a in a bunch situation, but he's doing it all the time. He's disobeying the coach and he's running his own plays. What would happen to him? Oh, that's okay. He's just expressing himself. <laughs> well, he would express himself on the bench. Somebody said it. Until he learned to express himself by executing the plays. He wouldn't be a faithful member of the team by choosing to rebel. And he couldn't blame his choices on the coach. Well, Paul's saying you can't blame your choices on God. He will always be justified. He is true. His word is true. And his promise to be faithful to that word is true. And your responsibility is to line up with that. And what he's saying to the Jews is you have done it externally, but you haven't done it internally. You don't have the heart. That's why he's pointing back to unbelief here. And therefore the, the unbelief is expressed in a life of unfaithfulness. See, the Jews could not blame God for their failure and they should not have expected Him to just sweep their sin under the rug. God had promised curses 
and condemnation for sin, and he would faithfully execute that. And as I said, since the garden, we've been trying to blame our sin on other people, including God. I'll just give you one verse that we can't blame our sin on God. He's not responsible. He can sinlessly, sovereignly use sin without being responsible for it. And the one who is sinning is the one who made the decision to sin and who is responsible for it. But James says this in 1.13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he, tempts, he himself tempts no one. Now, where does sin come from then? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The judgment God promised. Who's responsible for the sin? God? The person. Now, there's a lot of mystery in theology. We embrace His sovereignty, but we also better embrace responsibility. People are making real choices and they are responsible for those choices. Now they're in bondage to sin, we know, and they're making sin according to their greatest inclination and desire of their heart. But just because, you know, people do two things. They reject God's sovereignty, so they wash it out for responsibility. Or they reject, they elevate, over-elevate sovereignty to the extent that it washes out responsibility. Not biblically balanced. See, what they should have done was love the Lord and follow His commands. But they went their own way. They were unfaithful. Most of the Jewish people, again, I'm exempting the remnant. We're talking about later. Most of the Jewish people went that way. They went their own way. They were unfaithful. They expected blessing. But they lived in a way that brought curse. They should have taken sin seriously because God is faithful to His promises to judge. But they didn't. So that, secondly, take sin seriously because God is righteous in His judgment. So He's faithful to execute His judgment that He's promised. He's also righteous in doing so. And Paul's going to use some sort of silly examples of the way men think and the way sinful men think and the way sometimes we try to rationalize things. And the things he's presenting here would represent an unbelieving heart, not a believing heart, although there might be some remnants of this kind of stuff in us that needs to be rooted out. But take sin seriously because God is righteous in His judgment. And listen, this is, this is um, another place where it's expecting a no answer, so watch it. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. See, my sin and my darkness, in contrast, causes His holiness and, and righteousness to shine more brightly. Or... The fact that He can use my sinful actions for His own glory should get me off the hook. How many of you let your kids get away with stuff like that? Dad, I know I broke the lawnmower, but you got a new one, so you shouldn't punish me. Look, you got a new one. I don't know anybody who broke their dad's lawnmower this week, by the way. So if that happened and that's hitting you, that's the spirit, not me. 
This is another place expecting a negative answer. And listen again, it gets the strongest possible negative reaction. No, you cannot blame God. And no, you don't get off because He used it. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, in really a sinful human way, a self-focused, rational, and righteous. I think I'm supposed to shut up now. In judgment. And even if it echoes, how about you? I'm not asking you if. Because I wasn't asking me if when I was writing this. Where, where, where and how are you presuming upon God's grace and taking your sin lightly? Where are you trying to presume on grace and give yourself a pass as though God were not concerned about that thing? What in your life, if we look just at that, looks like you don't trust Him? Looks like it's a result of unbelief. Because that's what I was struck with studying this passage. Yes, they were taking sin lightly, but so do we. Even as believers, because He's forgiven me and will forgiven me, I don't really have to be that worried about it. Well, we've seen the results of that kind of theology, right? You, you, there's a lot of some preachers lately who only focused on justification, and that's all they ever preached, and they didn't talk about sanctification. And wonder of wonders, they end up running off in sin. God says to us, beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And look for where the remnants of that are and take it seriously and fight it in His grace. See, Christ died, He paid the penalty for our sin. On that cross, He was suffering physically, yes. The nails and all of that hurt. The lashes, everything. It was very painful. But the biggest thing, the thing He sweat blood about was knowing He would face the wrath of God for the sin of His people. See, the physical suffering was something, but it was hardly anything in compared to the spiritual suffering He took. On that cross, He took our condemnation. He took our hell upon Himself. And he drank it dry because he's God and man. He could take eternity and eternal wrath upon himself and drink it dry on the cross. He could be the Lamb of God. He could be the scapegoat. He could be the one who'd make atonement and propitiation. And we'll talk soon about that big word. But he did it, as I pointed out last week from Titus, for two reasons. To save us and purify us and create a people who are zealous for good works. In other words, a people who in their lives actually follow Him. Actually love Him and obey Him and grow in it. So where are you not taking that seriously? In your husbandry, in your wifery, in your childery, in your workery, in your neighbory, in your life. 
Where have you given yourself a pass? What is it in your life that's destroying those around you because it's unfaithful to Christ? See, God would have us think about these things. He wants us to talk about sanctification too. I heard this week, if you're really going to preach the gospel, at some point you're going to be accused of both legalism and antinomianism. And a lot of times when you start talking about sanctification, people start going, legalism, legalism, as though God couldn't command you to do anything. No, on the basis of His grace, He commands us. And He empowers us. And He works in and through us. If you're living a sinful life, a bare profession of faith will do you no good. Is God working repentance in you? Is He ever convicting you about stuff? Does He make you grieve over your sin? See, loving God is both obedience to Him and joy and grief and hatred of sin. And if I'm never experiencing this, I probably don't have this. And I don't want you to be, and I don't want me to be, I don't want us to be like the Jews and the Gentiles here and like those who stood before Jesus in Matthew 7 that we memorized, get all the way to the throne of judgment thinking we have a relationship with Him only to hear from Him. I never knew you. You who practice unrighteousness. The soul that God justifies, He sanctifies. And He grows us in grace by showing us who He is and moving us to love Him, be grateful to Him, and walk in obedience to Him in growing measure. Listen to me. True grace should make us hate sin. Jesus didn't come and die for you and be raised from the grave to enable you to sin and confess it and keep doing the same thing over and over. Don't ever again say out of your mouth, it's, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. That is a mighty pagan thing to say. That is presuming upon God's grace. True grace should make us hate sin. And if it was really at work, if we're really hating sin, it shows, verse 28 and 29, that we have a circumcised heart that would never bring these silly excuses before God, thinking He would give us a pass. To truly love God is to deeply hate sin. Why? Look at what it did to your Savior. And look at what He had to do to save you. And if you won't have Him as your Savior, look at what it'll do to you. Eternity. Apart from God's grace. Under His condemnation. is not a place we want to be. We're all susceptible to the danger of presuming on His grace. And I'll guarantee you we're all doing it somewhere in our lives. There's something in our lives that we're giving ourselves a pass for with silly rationalizations kind of like these. Think about it. Pray about it. Because if we're presuming on the grace of God and taking sin lightly, that's following Satan, not Jesus. We want God to search our hearts and try us. We want God to show us whether or not we're trusting in Him, whether or not we're really His. And we want God to work in us both faith and repentance as a work of His grace so that we will grow in living a life that honors Him.
that we will sacrificially love Him and sacrificially love others, that we'll lay ourselves down and our rights down and whatever it is when we need to sometimes to take up that cross and love others around us. So all I want to ask us to do is what I've asked you to do in the past. is to go before the Lord and ask Him to search you. Because really the Spirit has to do the work with the Word of God. And He'll either show you that you know Him or He'll show you that you don't. Or He'll show you that you know Him and, but, but He will convict the starch out of you about some area where we're not looking like Jesus. But if God is disciplining us, that is a really good sign because He disciplines those He loves. If we don't experience His discipline, Hebrews 12 says we don't know Him. We embrace discipline. We yearn for growth. We embrace the cross. We look to Christ and we follow Him and imitate Him and say to our God, not my will, but yours be done. Read this with me and then take this home and pray this, please. But we're going to read it together slowly. And this is Psalm 139, 23 and 24. I don't know if we can get it up. Can we get it up on the screen? There it is. Let's just read this slowly. In an attitude of reverence for God and asking Him, actually asking Him to do this. You ready? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray that every day this week as part of our devotion. And remember His work of grace, His cross for us, Him purchasing us for Himself. He will make it known. See, I... I was just being transparent with you about how I was raised. I should have been condemned. That's what I deserved. I deserved condemnation. But by God's grace at the age of 26, although I was spoiled and wicked, deserving only wrath, He saved me. He worked faith in my heart and repentance. And wonder of wonders, the sins that I used to love, I suddenly hated. And the righteousness I used to hate, I, I now I craved. Not that I was glorified. I'm not glorified yet. Ask Cindy. He's still working on me. And I'm not glorified yet. But I can say with John Newton, and this would be another good thing for you to sort of memorize and think about. John Newton said this. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Love your God by taking your sins seriously and looking to Christ for forgiveness and power to live a new and God-honoring life. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. I pray that every one of us, even the smallest child that I hear, would be given eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that understands 
so that we would turn to Christ. We would repent of our sins and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that our lives would prove that profession. That we would live lives that are growing in honoring you. Growing in loving you. An ongoing work of repentance. As Luther said, the entire Christian life is a life of repentance. Lord, make us like Jesus in growing measure. Work in us a hatred of sin. Work in us so that we won't give ourselves a pass, but that we'll look to your cross. Own it for ourselves that you've paid the penalty for our sins. Own the power coming from it that we might grow in not practicing those sins and being light and salt for you. Lord, deliver us from ever making any silly rationalizations such as what we see in this text today. But that we might trust you and love you. Live for you. Sacrifice ourselves for you and our brothers and sisters. And that all of our boasting would be in you. Bring to faith those who don't know you this morning. Plant seeds of the gospel. And Lord, those of us who do know you, grow us in grace. Work repentance in us. Challenge us if need be. Conform us into the image of Christ. Do your work that only you can do. We ask for it. And we trust for it. In Jesus' holy name.